Stones, everybody. I am Sean Graham. Scott, not alongside, as always. He's off campaigning to become the Eastern Ontario president of the Toto Fan Club. So I am here riding solo for the moment this week on the show. Really fun episode for you this week. Uh, we'll get to what I recorded a little earlier. But before we get into the bulk of what the show is this week, wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the world of curling this week as the season has been wrapping up. One big event still to go here on the curling calendar, but we finished up a couple big ones, the biggest of which for most people, the Grand Slam of Curling 2021-2022 season is in the books as the Champions Cup played out over in Old Alberta over the course of the weekend. 12 men's, 12 women's teams were there. And let's start on the women's side where Carrie Anerson and her team come through a tiebreaker to go all the way through to win. They beat Team Gim 10-6 in the final. Pretty impressive for Carrie Anderson and her team. They go 3-2. and two. There was a glut of teams at 3-2. and two. Five teams, in fact, all tied at 3-2. and two. And it was Anderson going through Kim Eun-jung in the tiebreaker to move into that quarterfinal game. She goes on, beats Rachel Holman, Anna Hasselberg, and as mentioned, Team Gim. They're in the final. Great week for Gim. They beat Fleury Terenzoni on their way into the finals. And when you talk about the depth of women's curling in different countries, obviously Canada, Switzerland, the two biggest ones that, that you might point to, although Switzerland in the last quad lost a, a team and, and Elena Stern has, has since left. And the front end, of course, for Terenzoni is retiring. So maybe the, the depth is being compromised just a little bit. But it, you got to say, in terms of depth of field, Korea's right there, probably number two. And you see it here this week, two teams making the playoffs if you count Team Kim in the tiebreakers making the playoffs, which for our point system, we don't. But still, they were right there. They won as many games in the round robin as did all the other playoff teams. So a good week there for Korean curling in those Korean championships as they come up next year will be a lot of fun to watch. So Carrie Anderson finishes off her season with another win. One of the only teams in this field that is going to stick together next year. There was a lot of tears, a lot of emotion on display over the course of the week as teams were eliminated. And that was the end for a lot of players playing together. Saw the emotion. Certainly Dawn McEwen played her last game. She is retiring from competitive curling. That was an emotional moment. I believe Thursday night with Jennifer Jones and that team. That was the end of that squad. Similarly, Joanne Courtney is stepping away, at least for the time being. She was very emotional at the end of Team Homan's run at this event. Team Flurry, of course, separating out, going their separate ways. There was uh, certainly emotion there as well. Of course, as you mentioned, the front end for Terenzoni retiring. So a, a lot of moving pieces there on the women's side. And you did see uh, the emotion come out as the seasons ended for these players and their tenures together also ended. But uh, as I said, Team Anderson gets the win. They are going to stick together over the course of the next quad over on the men's side brad gushu somehow some way keeps winning i don't understand how these guys were able to do this this season just an, an incredible remarkable season for brad gushu they cap it off with the champions cup beating kevin cooey eight to five 
in the final. Gushu did have to go through the quarters, beating Botcher, then Adin en route to beating Kevin Cooey. Great week for Kevin Cooey and the runner-up spot. They got the direct spot into the semifinal beat Brad Jacobs there in the semis to get into the final. No tiebreaker on the men's side. And even without Vic willing it into existence, that was the case there. Similarly, with the Women's, we did see a lot of emotion on the men's side as teams played their final games together. Certainly, Brad Jacobs was emotional, as was Joan McCusker in the interview. (laughs) They were both emotional as they talked to each other as Brad Jacobs is stepping away from competitive four-person curling. He did note that he is going to play mixed doubles, but the four-person is done. And that, I think, has a different dynamic to it, that particular team because he's related to the Harndons and they've been together for so long, the the three of them and obviously Kennedy coming in. But when you think of that team, those are the three mainstays that have, have played together for over a decade now at the highest level. And certainly they played together growing up, growing through the development stages of the sport as well. So certainly some emotion there for those guys as that was the end of their run. Some emotion too, of course, for Team Gushu. That's the end of those four guys playing together. Of course, Brett Gallant moving on, going to Alberta. So it was nice for them to get a victory. Again, I have no idea how Brett Gallant is, is still able to be on his feet after what this season has been for him, going through playing so much, and especially late in the season, post-Olympics, if you think of how much he has actually played going from the Olympic Games right to the Briar, then to the World Championship. Then he has also played, of course, in the two Grand Slams and the Mixed Doubles World Championship. He has certainly earned a bit of a breather here over the next little bit. Some other teams, of course, that are no longer going to be together. Kevin Cooey, that's the last ride for those guys. John Morris is going to shift his attention back to the mixed doubles game. And the other guys have all announced where they are going to play. Gunlickson makes the playoffs. And that's the end of the line for that team. Of course, Team Epping is another one. That'll be the end of the line for those guys. Perhaps the biggest surprise of the week, Team Maui, they go out and go one and four, missing the playoffs. But it's a surprise, of course, given how well they have played this year. But end of the season, it's May. I have a rule just in general. Now, it's it's only for teams I play on usually, but let's apply it here that games in September and games in May don't count. And summer spiels are just for fun. So unless it's being played in the, and, and really for my teams, even in April, they don't really count at that point. Of course, there are real games at the highest level still in April, but basically if there's a chance I could wear shorts to the game, it doesn't really count. So, so give those guys a pass on a, a one in four record at the end of a, what I'm sure very tiring season for them. Of course, they didn't play in the world championship, but a successful season, no doubt for Bruce Mowat and his squad. So uh, a real emotional weekend out there in olds for a lot of folks, players, fans, broadcasters alike. Uh, as I said, Joan was pretty emotional talking to Brad Jacobs at the end of his run. So well done to everybody, to all the players. <laughs> Certainly earned a bit of a breather here. Uh, hopefully you can get some time, a little bit of R&R, reconnect with those other people who live in your house. They are your family. You might recognize some of them, and uh, you might learn that they are delightful people after having, in a lot of cases, not seen much of them over the past little while. So I I think, uh, you know, as we get into the summer, the hard work is done of the season. The hard work is done of lineup changes. Hopefully everybody can relax, refresh, and come back at it as we get into a new quad in the fall. And we'll see how these teams all look. Of course, here on the show, we're going to talk about some of the lineup changes in more depth than we have on the show as we get into our summer season. One such announcement was made earlier this week that it was officially officialized that EJ Harnden is going to take Brett Gallant's spot on Team Gushu. He will play second. Part of that announcement as well was that Jeff Walker is going to be moving to Newfoundland and Labrador 
to satisfy the residency requirement. One question, though, that I had about this is he doesn't need to right now. They have a spot in the briar as Team Canada. They don't need to satisfy a residency requirement today. They have to potentially, if they don't win next year, fulfill a residency requirement next year if they want to play together out of Newfoundland. But they don't have to do it today. Now, this could be a time personally where Jeff and Laura Walker feel that this is the time if they're going to make a move. This is the time to move the family. And certainly there's nothing you could say to that. That's a, a personal choice on their part. But I, I was just curious about that side of it, the sense of, oh, you need three there. But do you right now? Because I don't, I don't think you actually do. But again, personal choice uh, for Jeff and Laura if they are going to be moving out there to Newfoundland and Labrador to satisfy that requirement. But that will be the new look team Gushu heading into next season. So that puts a wrap on the 2021-2022 Grand Slam of curling season. They'll be back at it next year. Look out for an episode where we're going to be talking about the format of the Grand Slam and some ideas that we have on ways that we think might make it a little more interesting to follow along. So uh, looking forward to that in the summer season. And the other major event that took place over the course of the weekend, or at least that wrapped up on the weekend, was the Canadian Under-18 Curling Championship taking place over there in Oakville, Ontario. Oakville, suddenly, the home of curling in southern Ontario. So many big events seem to be taking place in Oakville, right? If the two versions of the Stu Cells were there in the past couple of years, the, the Toronto one and then the Oakville one. I have this event, uh, one of the Grand Slams was there or is going there uh, at some point. So a lot of big events taking place out there in Oakville, Ontario, a place that I have uh, spent some time in my life. On the girls' side of things, it was an all-Alberta final. Alberta won against Alberta 2. And it was Alberta 1, skipped by Maya Plett. Winning alongside Rochelle Jacques, Alyssa Nedowin, and Lauren Miller. If that last name of the second sounds familiar, that's because it is, in fact, the daughter of Dave Nedowin and the great Heather Nedowin. Photos of them there in Oakville cheering along the final of this game against, as I said, Alberta 2, skipped by Claire Booth alongside Kaylee Raniseth. Raylin Helston and Kate Ector wasn't the most exciting of games that I've ever seen. They go out three blanks in the first three ends and then a force for Alberta two. So they get the hammer there in the fourth, only down one, nothing, uh, only eight in games here too, but they can't quite get the rocks where they want them in the fifth and sixth ends. They were chasing a lot, give up two steals. So they're down three, nothing, after six and then get forced they really had the, the rug pulled out from under them in that seventh end they had things set up i thought pretty well and then maya plett with hers uh, really just changed the whole structure of the end made it difficult for claire booth to get in there for two pretty much impossible for her uh, with a beautiful freeze i believe it was by maya plett that really cut that off and, and at three one Really tough to be in position. It was such that Maya Plett did not have to throw her last as Claire Booth rolled out on her final rock in the eighth end. So it's a win for Alberta one, but a cool photo afterwards with the two Alberta teams together and a good story that all Alberta final. Uh, it's rare, of course, in these type of national events where you get two teams from the same province playing against each other in a final it's something that really has only been possible recently at a lot of events with the wild card at the highest levels and certainly at the juniors sometimes you get the two representatives from a member association so uh, congratulations certainly to both teams but of course alberta one gets the victory there on the boys side it was a saskatchewan nova scotia final and it is the team from saskatchewan Saskatchewan won, skipped by Matthew Druitz alongside Michael Horn, Carter Peronto, and Jared Tessier, who take the final with a 5-4 to four win. 
as I said, over Nova Scotia. Two skipped by Nick Mosher alongside Sean Belland, Evan Henniger, and Aiden McDonald. So this one came down to the eighth end. Saskatchewan had the hammer. They get the single for the 5-4 win. This is one of these games, too, where when you watch it, and you can go back and watch all the games that were broadcast on the Curling Canada YouTube channel. They're still all up there, and there were some good ones over the course of the week. But Nova Scotia starts with the hammer, and they get forced, and then Saskatchewan gets the deuce, and then steals. So within the first three ends, they're able to flip that hammer, and that's so important when you can do that really early in the game, even though you give up a two, they gave, there was a blank and four, they give up a two and five. So you're tied. But as we said, we, you flip the hammer, you're in control of the game tied in the sixth end. You have the hammer in an eight end game. You're going to win that a lot more often than you're not uh, at the highest levels of the sport. So great job there by Saskatchewan and Matthew Druitt's his team. I should note that Dean on the scene was in Toronto the weekend before this event took place, and he bumped into Team Saskatchewan at the CN Tower. Don't know if it was this Saskatchewan or the other Team Saskatchewan because there were two boys' teams from Saskatchewan there. But let's say it was this one, and let's say maybe Dean had a little luck that he was able to pass on to these guys there from the Nutana Curling Club in Saskatoon. So congratulations to them. Congratulations, of course, to Nova Scotia too, and all the players there in Oakville, all 42 teams. It was a fun event to watch uh, the parents, the fans who were there in Oakville. It was full every time I turned it on and loud. People were were getting their money's worth in terms of cheering on, making some noise. So always cool to see. Super fun event there for the under 18 national championship. And finally, in the world of curling, The World Junior Curling Championship is taking place this week. Kicks off Saturday, May 15th over there in Jönköping, Sweden, with 10 men's, 10 women's teams participating. It'll be curious to see how this goes. Uh, Of course, the World Junior Bs were canceled earlier this year. So it's, it's good that this event is taking place. It's not in its regular spot on the calendar as i record this on thursday there was some photos that uh, owen purcell and his team representing canada uh, they were making their way over to sweden to get things underway for this event so they should be there friday maybe get a practice session in and get used to that time change on the women's side it's isabel ledesur who is skipping the canadian side and of course those teams won the event back in December, January, whenever that was, uh, for the opportunity to represent Canada here at the World Junior Curling Championship. So good luck to them. Good luck to everybody who is going to be playing there in Yonkapin. Always a good time for the World Junior Curling Championship. And if you go through the rosters, you will see some uh, family names that uh, might be familiar to you. So I encourage you to do that. And the games will be streamed on Recast. Select games will be streamed on Recast if you want to check it out and follow it all along. So that's what's going on in the world of curling. Now let's get to something I recorded a little bit earlier today. Now it occurred to me that... I am in a very fortunate position for a lot of reasons. But in terms of curling, that I play at a facility that is dedicated to curling and that has a full-time manager. It has a paid bartender. It has a, a kitchen that serves food that you can, for, that you can buy uh, before or after your game. And... It's very different, I know, from the experience of a lot of other players who you could be at a volunteer club where you pay and then you also have to do some volunteer hours working at the bar. Or you're playing in a facility that is not dedicated to curling. And I have had the opportunity to play in some arenas in my life, but only at Bonspiels. And that experience is very different from the weekly arena clubs that exist I would say primarily in the United States. I don't know if there are any arena clubs in Canada. If there are, please do reach out and let us know. 
But I thought it'd be interesting to reach out and get a bit more of an insight into what happens at arena clubs. What are the challenges? How do you set up your club? How do you get the ice ready when potentially, you know, 45 minutes earlier, people were playing hockey on it or figure skating on it? Like, how, how do you get the conditions so that you can curl? How do you even like put in hacks? I had no idea how you would do that without disrupting the skating but also having a hack that is secure enough that you can throw on. So I reached out to the fine folks at the Palmetto Curling Club out in South Carolina. They play at the Pavilion in Taylor's South Carolina. They are coming to the tail end of their spring season. They have one week left. The final games are being played this upcoming Tuesday. And I wanted to reach out just to ask, what are the challenges of playing in an arena? Are, what are the benefits potentially of playing in arena and particularly in a place like South Carolina that doesn't have a significant history of curling or even ice sports, really? Like you don't grow up around ice in a warm weather climate the same way that perhaps you might in a more northern climate. So I just wanted to, to sort of get a sense of some of those challenges, some of the benefits, while at the same time, what does the Olympics do for them and what did it do for them? What is the conversion rate from open houses to getting people to sign up to play on a regular basis? And in particular, 2018 was big for curling clubs throughout the United States. And, I'm, you know, it is possible to overstate it, but it was huge. And of course, having the gold medalist helps a lot. The results this time weren't as good for the United States. Still pretty good. Nothing to be ashamed of by any means. But you didn't have that same media blitz of John Schuster and his team coming back with the gold medals being everywhere on TV for a couple of weeks. So I wanted to talk about what the Olympic bump was here in 2022, maybe compared to 2018. So I was fortunate enough to be joined by Brian Champion Westcott of the Palmetto Curling Club, one of the best club Twitter accounts out there. If you're not following it, certainly get on that. So really enjoyed the chat with Brian. I appreciated him taking the time to speak with me. And I think you'll enjoy it, particularly if you've never played in an arena before, don't really know much about arena curling. I think this will be illuminating. I learned a lot from it uh, and, and really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know the Palmetto Club just a little bit more. So let's get right into my chat with Brian Champion Westcott. All right. Now, Brian Champion Westcott joins me from the Palmetto Curling Club. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sean. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, as I said in the intro, talking a little bit about arena curling as the Palmetto Curling Club is coming towards the end of its spring season. Uh, so before we get into some of the specifics of what's been going on, how has the season been so far? Are there a lot of tight races for you know, championship positions as we come into the last week of the season here? That's actually been a, a pretty good season for us. Um, we are... Uh, it, with the, the Olympic push that we had, we, we've had a lot of new curlers on the ice, so that makes uh, things a little bit more interesting in terms of uh, uh, the teams that uh, uh, are able to take the ice, but we're always happy to get new teams out there. We have uh, one team, Team Parker, that uh, has never made the final before, so they are, uh, it's, it's fantastic that uh, they are in the championship, um, and they are playing against... Uh, uh, an old timer, Matt Sharkey. So he uh, he's he's won several times before now. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, that plays out. All right. So it's a Parky Sharkey final, or Parker, excuse me, Parker Sharkey final. That's right. My team unfortunately uh, lost one game to Sharkey, and we uh, will have to settle for uh, the third place game. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, hopefully it goes well for you on Tuesday night in that last game. I did want to ask you about the Olympic push because here in Canada, we we hear so much about that cycle in the United States for curling clubs across the country that the Olympics are very important in generating new interest and, and new players in the sport. And I think you guys were interesting to me, at least in the timing of your spring season, in that it started in March. So your recruitment drive was through February 
during the heart of the Olympics. Now, the 2022 Olympics were not the 2018 Olympics in terms of success for the American teams. You didn't have that American sure. amazing story uh, for, for well, it's not like, it's not like Canada <laughs> shone in glory uh, through the the Olympics either. But how did the how did you guys notice the difference between 2018 and 2022? Obviously, you said a lot of people came out, but was there any noticeable difference this time to the last time? Uh, there was. Uh, we, so in 2018, um, we actually had at least one, maybe two of our open houses that occurred after that gold medal game. So we got a lot of interest right after that. Um, people were obviously saw it in the news, heard about it, watched it, and they, they definitely wanted to come try it. Um, our push this year was, like you said, right in the middle of the Olympics. So we, uh, we didn't start the spring season until after. Um, so there was, while we had a lot of interest, it, uh, it didn't quite hit the same level as it did last time. Um, but it, uh, in, at least in terms of member retention or member turnover from the open houses. Um, even still, we, we pushed through 500 people in three nights, um, wow. which is, you know, Credit to our volunteers because uh, they were absolute rock stars. They just uh, they just kept going every single night, and uh, we we got that through. Um, and we converted probably twenty five to thirty people uh, to to league playing members this season, and probably another twenty onto the substitute list uh, that uh, can jump in whenever uh, whenever a need arises. Yeah, so I would say that's pretty good. If you if you had about five hundred people through, you convert ten percent of them into either full time members or people who are on the list. I would say that's a pretty good conversion rate for people coming out and giving it a try, and, and is a testament, as you say, to those volunteers, the people who led those to get people to want to sign up. Uh, very impressive numbers there. What is the total membership of Palmetto? Uh, and, and what do you sort of range? And do, and do you notice? Because I've noticed on, on a couple of leagues that I've played in that have the separate seasons. That now, granted, we're in Canada, and it was an older league, so the winter season was noticeably less busy, as a lot of folks would travel out of country for the winter, just vacations and stuff. So, in, in general, what's the total membership, and, and do you see any any variation fall to winter in your seasons? Uh, we have probably 50 to 60 core members, uh, people who come back year after year. Um, we, we have some people that will only play in the fall season because it's a, it's a rather lengthy drive for them. Uh, and so they don't want to commit to fall and spring. And we have some people that only play in the spring season. So it, it does vary season to season. Um, we have a winter season this year. We typically do not. Uh, but we had one this year because it was a very short, about five, six weeks, uh, just to get ready and let, let members have a little bit of time on the ice before the Olympics and uh, that push. Um, typically, we don't have that winter season, though, because it is, like you said, a, a lot of people are going to be traveling over the holidays and they may not want to put in the time. Uh, and to come out and play and commit to one night a week for that. And did you guys, I know, you know, the United States, and this isn't to have a big discussion about this, but certainly the past two seasons here for, for us, for Scott and I playing, and for a lot of folks across Canada has been disrupted and potentially even heavily disrupted uh, by COVID. Uh, now, obviously the rules uh, there are different than the rules here. And I, I don't know, have, have you guys been affected by all of what's been going on? Have you had to cancel? Have you even potentially even lost folks as a result of the pandemic and what's been going on? Yeah, we, we definitely have. Um, things were affected for us. Uh, we, I mean, we were all set to move in with a, a, into a different facility at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, about two weeks before that happened, we found out that that facility had not met its construction goals and was not going to be able to open for us. So that was a little fortuitous because we were not financially on the hook to, to start there. Um, and then the everything shut down in March, and it was a, rather a moot point. That, uh, that kind of killed that entire season for us. Uh, but when we came back in the fall, we came back with 
uh, quite a number of health and safety protocols, um, which were our, our facility required masks, but that was about it uh, in terms of any sort of, of health and safety measures. So we, we took it upon ourselves and instituted a number on our, for ourselves. And uh, we were able to have a successful season as, you know, as things go. Um, but uh, we, we definitely had people who stayed away. I think we only had about 40 people come out in that season. So I think we were only able to manage uh, one draw for, uh, for that season. Um, just, uh, just too many people not wanting to take the risk, which uh, was totally understandable. Yeah. And what's the financial impact for you guys on that? Uh, you are a rental club, right? You do rent your space from the arena. We'll talk about the realities of being an arena club in a bit, but just financially, do you need to, what do you need to sustain yourselves? And was there a bit of a reserve to help you get through that season with only one draw? Yeah. So our, our financial situation is, is not too terrible as things go. We, uh, we have a core membership fee every year that, uh, it's $125 that members have to pay, uh, in order to be Palmetto Club members. And that's, that keeps the lights on for us. That, uh, pays insurance costs for being on the ice. Uh, it buys membership to the U S curling association, um, and our, our regional, uh, grand national curling, um, GNCC uh, regional uh, affiliation. Um, so that's that's what we need to to do to pay the taxes to stay afloat. And then everything else that gets paid by membership for league fees goes to paying for ice time. Uh, so we will pay roughly $30 a night in order to step on the ice and play a game. Um, that's, that's every member will pay that. Um, so we need to roughly pay, uh, our, we pay $350 an hour to rent the ice. And so we need to have about 55, 56 members, uh, on the ice in order to afford two draws a night or two draws a week. even. Yeah. So if you can pull the two draws, then you should be good. How many sheets can you fit on? Cause you're playing on, you know, hockey, uh, figure skating ice. How, how many sheets do you, do you put on there? We have, we have four sheets. Um, okay. I think we, we, I think we have enough space that we could cram five in, but, uh, like you've, you've played in Knoxville, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they had five sheets there and it's not, uh, the, the edge sheets are not you're, great. You're on the board. You're on the boards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have enough, we have enough footage that we could get that uh, fish sheet in, but uh, we don't. I mean, we we only have four sheets worth of rocks at this point, so it's not uh, not really a point, not really a, a use in get, painting those lines in. So, yeah, we have four sheets. Yeah, and and if it's full. That's 64 folks uh, a night. So that gives you a buffer a little bit of if a couple teams play with three, you can't get spares, whatever, you can still fill in that spot. And, and it's interesting. I think a lot of people might hear that number of 30 bucks a night. I did the math uh, last year of what I would pay per game, assuming I played every game I was scheduled to play in uh, at the Ottawa Curling Club. And it worked out, I think, to 18 or 19 bucks. Uh, but I also didn't play every game, right? Cause you know, sometimes you're out of town, things happen, you get sick. So that 30 num that 30 number, it, yeah, it might be lower a little bit in a dedicated facility potentially, but it's not outrageous. I don't think it's beyond what a lot of folks would pay anywhere else. So just in terms of the context of that, when you pay a, a total fee up front, it tends to not quite compute on what the per night costs would be so you know and i'm curious to to ask about just as you are recruiting people one does that factor in how much does cost factor into the recruitment the other thing is if i can go purely stereotypical canadian here the people who you are trying to recruit, you know, Southern United States, it's not necessarily a place where ice, you grow up with ice sports necessarily. You know, what is the challenge, not just for curling, but just ice sports in general to get people to want to go inside a cold arena 
in what at least I would consider a primarily warm weather state. It's a, it's a fair point. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, it is a challenge at times because we, we have, in our area, we have right now two ice facilities and one just opened a couple of years ago and it's a private rink. So that's kind of off limits to the public. So the facility we're in now is a public facility owned by the county and that's that's really the only avenue for people to go to, to go inside and be on the ice. Mm. Now there is a there is a big hockey uh, contingent in this area. People love hockey. Uh, people love to go figure skate too. Um, but it's not curling is uh, not quite there yet in terms of popularity. Hopefully we'll get there. But honestly, you know, when it's uh, forty degrees Celsius outside. Going inside to a, a nice, cool building and uh, getting out of the heat is—it's—it's uh, it's not bad. It's quite nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good point. Uh, that's a very good point. That is sort of the, the appeal, I think, of a lot of summer spiels too. It's like right. air-conditioned activity. And, and you know, our, our spring and summer months are uh, unlike Canada. They're at least uh, uh, three quarters of the year here. So uh, you know, Canada, you only have one to two weeks of summer. So you got to. <laughs> You have to do what you can, right? <laughs> yeah, we really got to pack it all in there right. uh, in a That's very, right. very small window. So, as we mentioned, you are an arena club in a in a public arena. As we talked before, you said figure skating goes on before you, uh, so you have about a half hour to work on the ice. Now, I, I, I know hockey is bad in terms of chips and stuff. I got to imagine figure skating is worse, especially if people are doing a lot of jumps where they're digging in their toes into the ice uh, so you have a half hour from them being off to when you get the ice to start to prep it uh, so what is the process of prepping the ice on a regular night and i think this would be interesting for a lot of folks in canada who just play at dedicated facilities who show up and play as i am one of those people uh, so i just show up and play but you guys have to do a lot of work to get the ice ready so what is it just an average typical night for you guys in getting control of the ice to that first rock being thrown sure so yeah the zamboni goes on right around six o'clock at night uh the zamboni will do a couple passes and uh a wet cut and a dry cut i believe if uh time permits uh and once they are far enough away from the the far side of the uh the sheet um towards starting towards the Zamboni house side. Um, we have somebody who goes onto the ice with the hacks and a couple of rocks and starts setting the hacks on the far side. Uh, now the process for setting the hacks is that we put them into a, a bin of super hot water and our hacks are constructed so that they are the rubber hack on top of a small wooden block and then that is all bolted to a sheet of 12 or 14 gauge steel. Um, so it's, it's a piece of steel about a foot long, foot and a half long, uh, that will get nice and hot in that uh, really hot water. Um, and then when we go to set the hacks, they will take that, put the metal side down and allow that to start melting the ice directly under it. Um, and once it's nice and nice and soft, nice and melty, they'll uh, put the rocks on it. And once it will then start to freeze back over, and it, it, it allows for a nice solid surface for us to uh, to, to play from. Um, not always, we've had some blowouts, but uh, you know that's uh, that's that's the way of things. That's life. Um, so that's that's kind of the process for setting the hacks, and then once the hacks are in place, uh, we'll have other members uh, get brooms out and start to kind of sweep up the ice. Not uh, not not curling brooms, but uh, you know, four foot wide um, brush brooms. Try to try to get a lot of the detritus off the ice once the zamboni's done. Uh, and that uh, you know, two or three of them will go up and down the sheets, pushing those. Uh, try to clear off some of the uh, 
some of the bigger pieces of uh, uh, um, Zamboni ice that might be left over. And then we will typically get all the rocks out of the freezers. We have three large chest freezers where uh, we have 64 rocks that stay at a 32 to 37 degree temperature um, all the time. So it keeps them nice and cold for us. We'll, uh, people start moving those rocks from those freezers onto the ice. And while they're doing that, somebody will uh, get the pebbling going. Um, we have uh, two pebblers. We do one hot and one cold. Uh, I think the pebble head size is the same for both. Um, but somebody will, will do a pass with the hot, and then somebody uh, about five minutes later will come and do a pass with the cold pebble. Um, then once that's done, the rock box comes out. Uh, you've probably seen uh, the rock boxes. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they're typically pushed along uh, with, a, with a big handle. Um, ours is not quite that fancy. It's, uh, we, we have a rock box probably eight feet long that uh, we load up with rocks, and then one person pulls it with a rope uh, up and down the sheet while somebody uh, pushes out, pushes away any, uh, any bits of pebble or other ice that, uh, that um, comes off of it, comes out uh, from the uh, underneath on the ice, and mops that up and uh, pushes it off to the side. And then, of course, we, we have the inevitable uh, large ridge of ice that uh, um, can be a problem. So we'll have to get a, a big scraper out to go and scrape down those sections of ice. Uh, right. And if need be, we'll repebble in that section or we'll just sweep it off to the side. Because yeah, time is of a premium. It's uh, quite expensive. Yeah, so you're trying to do all this in essentially a half hour. Like that's a, a lot uh, to try to to pack it in. So for anyone who comes to play, is it is it a requirement that you are helping out with the ice for all the players, or is it a select number of folks who might have an interest in making ice or, or how the whole process works who regularly participate in this process? Uh, it's it's usually a select number of people. Um, there's currently no requirement, although it's greatly encouraged. Um, we, we definitely want people to get involved, uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we want people to know how to, how to pebble, how to, you know, the, the right way to pull the rocks out and get the, the rock box loaded. Um, all those things that absolutely need to be done for us to have any sort of a successful night of curling. So we, we definitely want them to be involved, but, uh, there's, we, we currently don't require them to do it. What kind of conditions are they regularly? Like how much curl do you get? What would you say the speed is like? Obviously, it's going to be very different from dedicated ice. Uh, but generally speaking, do you get consistent conditions week to week? No. <laughs> <Not really. laughs> um, sometimes we'll get uh, we'll get a little bit of curl. Uh, sometimes it'll be it'll run pretty straight down the ice. Uh, it's it really. A lot of it, unfortunately, depends on the Zamboni because um, sometimes we'll get uh, somebody in the Zamboni who's uh, just running through it real quick, and sometimes we'll, we'll, the Zamboni driver will take their time and get things nice and level. Um, and uh, we, we deal with it what we can. Um, the edge sheets uh, definitely uh, will will they'll be tipped a lot of times, and they'll fall towards the boards. Uh but uh, yeah, we, we, we do what we can. It's it's certainly better than not curling at all. Um, yeah. When it does when it does curl, you know it, it may not matter how much weight you put at it. It's still gonna find a little ridge and a little rut, and it's gonna it's gonna just follow that down and uh, miss your your takeout will flash regardless of uh, how much weight you throw at it. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's life. That's that's part of the Part of the arena experience is being able to read the ice and figure out what it's doing before uh, before you try to call your line and make your shot. Yeah, part of the charm of it all, uh, for sure. Charm, for sure. Yeah, yeah, the first time, I remember the first time I played on arena ice, it was in Pittsburgh. And what I noticed, apart from it, that happened to be very, very straight. Uh, and we were the doofuses from Canada who were like, oh, we'll play come arounds. And the locals were like, no, you put one in and then you play hit and rolls to get behind cover. That, and they and we got crushed because of that. The other thing, though, I noticed is 
the sight line was so different because you're in a hockey arena, whereas at a curling club, for the most part, from behind where the skip is, you're looking at 15, 20 feet. At the most, in a hockey arena, you got oh, so much more space uh, behind the skip, right? So that's one of the things that I noticed uh, in, in terms of just the experience of playing. The other was sweeping, and I really felt like uh, it, I was I was really just doing a very performance of sweeping that what I was doing was not making any difference at all. Uh, but for you guys, what are the, the sweeping conditions and is the ice conducive to what you're doing when you're sweeping? Uh, a lot of times it is it is conducive to sweeping. Uh, it's a good workout, that's for sure. <laughs> um, because, you know, we'll, we'll have situations where between between the blue lines, it'll be, uh, you know, we are on hockey ice after all. So yeah. between the blue lines, it'll be, uh, it'll be a good bit of frost. And so you need to sweep at the right amount and to, to get it through that frost and not be, uh, so it doesn't get bogged down. Um, but if you sweep it too much after that, you might end up making it go right through the house. So, cause it'll, it'll, it'll just, you might glide on a, a certain line and just go right through. So, you know, it's, uh, it figuring out where those, uh, those conditions are on the, on the sheet uh makes for uh makes it a challenge um and of course seven o'clock is going to be much different than nine o'clock when we're out there because it'll uh you know they've been sweeping it hard on all seven o'clock draw and then we get to nine o'clock and it's uh you know a little faster yeah i, I like that just like a good hockey team you got to control the neutral zone uh, that's right that's right in order to be effective um so so just to wrap here uh, for for a lot of Canadians, you know, I don't know how many of any uh, pure arena leagues there are in, in Canada. I would say 99% of people probably play at dedicated facilities, not 100% uh, here in this country. But arena clubs and leagues are certainly more common in the United States. So what would you say to Canadians and Canadian curlers about both the benefits and the biggest challenges of playing in an arena and being an arena league and something that you might want people to know that we probably don't know about the experience of being in a club and playing on arena ice? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, the experience is, I guess, if it's all you got, it's great. Um, if you're if you playing dedicated all the time, you, uh, you probably don't quite understand how good you have it. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, here, in, here, especially in the Southern U S you know, we have three clubs within 400 miles and one of them is us. We're smack in the middle and that's, and we're an arena. So it's not, we don't have nearly the density of clubs and it's, it's not quite as easy just to go find another one. Um, but again, it is, it is far better than not curling at all. So, you know, benefits, I mean, we don't have any facility maintenance costs. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's certainly go. a thing. Um, we, uh, we're good at breaking down the entire ice sheet in seven minutes after our draw. And uh, yeah. so we're very efficient. So, you know. Because uh, all those rocks have to be put away, the, uh, the hockey players get upset if they start tripping over them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there there are benefits uh, to arena curling, but I would I would say that the uh, the detriments far outweigh those. <laughs> yeah, and I th that's probably why we've seen so many folks, so many fundraisers recently, a lot of new facilities going up across the United States. So, uh, but but you know, it just and yes, for me, at the times I've played it. Uh, you're right. It was something that I probably wouldn't want to do all the time, especially that in when I was in Knoxville, their dehumidifier was broken. Just uh, so the ice was really uh, something else uh, when we were down there. But it was fun, and and the community of it seems really strong, and perhaps stronger than some of the places I've played up here. Uh, when you have maybe it's because it's a smaller number of people, maybe it's because everyone or a lot of folks are pitching in week to week to create the ice, get the stones out. Like it, it really does feel like in, in the couple places that I've been around arena clubs, that it, it builds a very strong, tight knit community. Yeah, we, that's actually something we've struggled with uh, because we are in a county facility 
um, we're not allowed to congregate or boomstack on site. So we can't socialize there. So the nearest bar to us at, at the 9 o'clock hour on a Tuesday night is 15, 20 minutes away. Uh, so it, uh, it, it, it is unfortunate, but uh, we, uh, it, does, it does hurt our, uh, our, our sense of community uh, in, in that regard. So you know, I would love if we had something closer. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, there you go. Just business idea. So, so Brian, if you want to keep up with what's going on at the Palmetto Curling Club, one of, if not the best club Twitter accounts uh, out there. Uh, so where can people follow along both uh, on social media and if they want to catch up with uh, the league and, and maybe come if they're in the town or, or in the area, check out your league, uh, your open houses, that kind of stuff. Uh, where, where can they keep up with everything going on? Yeah, we, so uh, Twitter handle is uh, Palmetto Curling. Um, we, we do our best to, to be, be relevant there. Um, we play every Tuesday night at uh, the Pavilion Rec Center in uh, Taylor's in upstate South Carolina. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. We, uh, we, we try to post as often as we can. Awesome. And uh, encourage everybody to check it out. So Brian Champion Westcott, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sean. So there you have it, my chat with Brian Champion Westcott. And again, I thank him for his time and good luck to everybody in the finals on Tuesday night. See who comes away with that coveted spring championship from the Palmetto Curling Club. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever you get your podcast, do likes, ratings, comments, all that other good stuff. Helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. Of course, you can head on over to GameOfStonesPod.com. All of our past episodes are there. Plus, all of the merch available under the merch tab. T-shirts, the proceeds from the T-shirts going to Food Banks Canada proceeds from everything else to the Sandra Schmirler Foundation. We, of course, match those as we go along here. So do check that out if you are interested. And as always, you can let us know what you want to hear on the show, Game of Stones podcast at gmail.com or Twitter and Instagram at Game of Stones pod. So hope you enjoyed that one. That was fun for me. Hope you liked it as well. Scott should be back next week. We'll see how his campaigning went, if he was successful and uh, other updates as we get into the summer season. Always a lot of fun for us to see what we can come up with over these summer months. So certainly hope you will follow along. So until we speak again, keep those brooms on the ice and don't dump that intern.